Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome back to the waiting room revolution. Today, we are very excited to be hosting a live event focused on AYA cancer, which is adolescents and young adults with cancer. We have Dr. Joshua Frank, a palliative care physician from Stanford Center for Palliative Care, and Max Lee, an AYA cancer patient with us. We're very excited. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Max, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your cancer journey so far? Okay, so um, I'm Max, and Dr. Frank is my palliative care physician, and I'm 20 years old, and I have osteosarcoma. A bit about myself, I guess uh, I was... Before I was diagnosed, I was just like, you know, a normal high school kid and, you know, never expecting any of this uh, to happen to me. And so I first got diagnosed in uh, January of 2019. Uh, I went through treatment and for a brief period of time, or actually it's a decent amount of time, like nine months, uh, I went into remission and I was able to attend uh, college and uh, I majored in aerospace engineering which I always wanted to do since around the end of 11th grade. From that point on in 2020, sort of like good few months into the pandemic is when my disease recurred and it became incurable. And so I've sort of spent over a year now living with a a serious disease. Thank you, Max. Uh, Josh, so when you met Max, like what were your impressions and what do you, when you meet an AYA patient, like how do you introduce what is what you do to them? Uh, so I mean, two questions. Um, I mean, I think there's still a lot of unknown around what palliative care, palliative medicine is. Um, and so that uncertainty actually allows the opportunity to kind of establish what you want patients to know and what you want them to expect. Uh, and so actually, I mean, a lot of times what my approach is with patients is just being very real being a human, I try to very quickly throw away the, the cloak of being a doctor. Um, I tell patients, it's okay to call me Josh um, because I, I, this is a human experience. And I think sometimes that white coat and the doctor side of all of this almost puts a barrier between helping patients really facilitate having a great kind of, to spend the rest of their time that they have and making sure that's well spent time. Um, and so that's something I kind of try to do, especially with my young adult patients, um, just because it is scary. Like this is like something that's not been anywhere in their mindset. They've never thought about really their own mortality in this type of level. And so just being able to make sure that there's a space that's free and open that they can be vulnerable, I think is really important. And so when I met Max, I think the first thing I was very much kind of in awe with is just his his maturity and I don't think he really fully understands how mature he really is in many ways um I see patients who are on the other spectrum of life near their 90s or 80s and they for them coming up to them trying to approach end of life can be really challenging and and almost live in a world of denial and Max from the get-go has been very clear about look I understand what this is I understand that life is short for me, but I want to maximize what time I have. I still want to be able to get treatments to prolong life as much as I can. 
Um, and legacy is really important to me. So I, I really applaud him for his maturity in that because I don't think everybody can come at that at that same level at the beginning. Max, what do you like about Josh? I think what he said is very like accurate that he like comes across as like, you know, not just a doctor, but someone absolutely talk to. And so I think he correctly identified like his just right off the bat, like, you know, what really I found, you know, helpful um, because he was like super approachable about everything. And he makes that like very clear. And so like from right from the start, I knew it was okay to like, you know, share what I've been thinking about death and dying and stuff like that. Even though I came into this knowing that, you know, he's a palliative care doctor. So obviously, you know, he's familiar with all this stuff, but the amount of openness that I felt still surprised me. And and so, yeah, that's probably what I like most about Josh. So has it been hard for you to find people to speak openly about death and dying with you? Not at all, because I really just need one person, which is my mom. She's mm -hmm. very supportive of me, you know, throughout my whole life. And so it was very easy to just start, you know, sharing my thoughts with her, um, especially during the first stretch where I was first diagnosed. That would have been a lot tougher if I didn't have her to talk too, especially during those like difficult nights in the hospital doing chemotherapy mm -hmm. you know she was just always there and I feel like for a lot of it I didn't act the way I want to act you know I, I was very like down and just very like I don't know it's it's it was just very hard to get through some of those especially with this one chemotherapy treatment that I had where mm -hmm. it was based on uh, whether you clear it that you could discharge me from the hospital, like whether you can clear the chemotherapy from your system and that mm -hmm. sort of varies. And so waiting for that, you know, got really hard. And so when I was really struggling with that, my mom was there um, and that sometimes it was like frustrating as well for both of us because like she saw me like in, you know, like just really like I always told her like, man, I just really want to go home, which I, Really regret doing because I know like you know it feels bad because she can't really do anything to help you know she wants to help like but then she can't and so that was like really tough but for some reason like I always still felt the need to just like man <laughs> I'm feeling terrible right now mm -hmm. and my mom would always be there to listen to me and like you know just even when I was being very like complaining about stuff and so like during those like darkest moments, I feel like um, without my mom, I probably would have like just snapped or something. I don't know. I feel like uh -huh. um, she helped me a lot during those times. Yeah. I bet she appreciated your honesty though, Max, because it sounds like you're the kind of person when you're feeling down, you're gonna tell her. And when you're feeling well, you're gonna tell her that too. And so she can really trust you to, to Tell it like it is, right? Yeah, and it, it's just really tough because I know like my mom's just been like very like, just totally like completely like a great mom and she's just completely, you know, selfless and just wants me to like be as comfortable as possible while I'm in the hospital. And so she, she knew like, you know, when my cancer recurred, like how much I really didn't like being there, how much it affected me. So like, you know, her treatment decisions, she understood what I value. Um, and so that was very important uh, because towards, you know, this, the serious end where it's like, you know, the cancer is incurable. Now I had to decide, you know, 
what symptoms are tolerable, my mom knew exactly, you know, what I could and couldn't handle. Yeah, so I, that's also another part where she helped me a lot. Just to add, just to give my own shout out to his mom, like I've been so impressed, you know, as I've had, you know, my own individual appointments with Max and most of them because of the pandemic been by video, you know, his mom may often be in the background. She'll kind of wave and say hello. And I'll even offer like, well, do, do you want to be with us today? Do you want to participate? And she's like, no, 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 this is Max. This is Max's appointment. I told her that. Yeah, it's my <laughs> fault that. No, but I, but I think she values your opinion in that, right? Like I, there are other people where it is like, that is not a, like family members will overstep and say, no, no, I need to be there and not really listen to the actual person who's going through this. And I applaud her. Even if you're telling her, Hey mom, I want this by myself. She listens to you, right? Like she's respecting your autonomy as an adult, even though you're her child. And that takes a lot. And I always, I've always been very respectful and just appreciative of her for doing that. I mean, I will say that in our podcast, we do talk to a lot of family members and parents and, you know, they have their own needs too. That's expect the ripple effect. But I, I was wondering, um, Josh, uh, what is like, what is different? Like, what are the, how are the needs of AYA patients different than many of the patients that you see? Um, yeah, I mean, the first thing to just kind of recognize is that group it, it kind of encompasses a pretty a pretty large range of ages. Um, we're talking about patients from the age of 14, people from 14 all the way to 39. So it's a pretty large group. And with that, it also, I think, kind of brings some challenges because a lot of those who may be diagnosed early on are often cared for in like a children's hospital setting, which often have a whole bunch of robust um, ancillary services other things that are available that we don't have in the adult world. Um, and then even sometimes as patients are kind of handed off to the adult side, or if they're diagnosed and they always are on the adult side, those resources aren't to the same level often as you see in the children's world and the children's hospital side. Um, I think the hard thing, or one of the hard things with this group of people is we don't expect this group to be really sick. It's one thing when a patient comes to your clinic or comes to the hospital and they're in their 70s and they have a, you know, a stage four di uh, cancer or they have advanced heart disease. For those doctors, those medical staff who are taking care for those, for those people, even for family members, there's kind of like in the back of the head, like, oh, this is, this is expected, right? Life expectancy is less than 100 years. So we're kind of getting close to the end. So this makes sense. For this age group, it is a mind screw. Like we, we don't anticipate talking or thinking about this age of this realm of patients or these realms of people of actually maybe facing end of life. And so there's a lot of our own emotions that come from that. Um, and there's a lot of different challenges that this range of, of, of people bring, right? So we're not just dealing with life review, but we're dealing with a lot of proactive grief. I'm not going to be able to have kids. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to be able to have my job. I'm not going to be able to travel the world. So there's a lot of like that proactive stuff that actually is much more heavy in my experience than the respective or the retrospective looking back on my life, thinking about the things I could have done or, or should have done or things I did do. It, it's that proactive stuff, that regret that I won't be able to actually participate in those things. That's really, really hard. That's really interesting. Yeah. So many patients are looking back and 
trying to sort out <laughs> where they've been, where they've come from, what their story's been. Um, but it's true, this is the grieving a story of going forward or not being able to go as forward as you would have liked, yeah. Yeah. Next, is there anything that you feel like um, that you want others to know that are the unique needs of AYA patients or any of your healthcare providers that you wish they were more aware of? I think the impact of how, like, just how derailing it is, for me, that was like the most frustrating part because I feel like maybe this is kind of reductive, but it's like, I was just in the middle of, you know, this or that, like I was, in the middle of you know, my senior year in high school, like, and I was in the middle of figuring out what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And also I was in the middle of a uh, robotics competition season. Uh, just all these things where it's just like, it feels very, very small, like things to complain about, right? But like, it just feels terrible, you know, when you're in that like sort of hectic period of time. Like I feel like from, I think as early as like, um, middle school for some people like to like you know college and like I think it's just there's a lot of feeling like the flow of time is just stopped and like it's something that is very difficult to like deal with uh, I guess mentally waking up in the morning and like sort of being like oh like having all these things to think about like the treatment and the whatever surgery like for me it was an amputation and you know, whatever it showed on the scans, whatever like treatments were being recommended and that suddenly like wedges its way in. And I think the most like stressful time for me was uh, actually when I was diagnosed with cancer for the first time, like not when it was like, you know, terminal, because it felt like I still needed to move forward. I still needed to like do what I can, finish high school at the very least, you know, try and like, you know, get things keep keep living with this and then hopefully it'll go away hopefully i just need to bear like you know this this and that like you know the the, the chemotherapy plan and then the surgery or whatever um you know the standard treatment and then it'll be gone and then i can you know go back full force you know um, <laughs> in my life like you know like um so i was still trying to juggle everything sort of like walking two roads where it's like you know remaining very hopeful um, because at that point uh i think there was, you know, overwhelming hope. Um, uh, at that point, uh, it was like, uh, you know, standard treatment, like there's a good shot, you'll make it, uh, was like the sort of vibe that I caught. And so that propelled me. And in a way it both like helped and hurt me because it made me that much more stressed about like, okay, this is like a challenge that now I have to face. Before I didn't have like anything like this. Um, but now that like, this is something that I wasn't expecting. Um, but I can, but I still have to like continue on, like thinking that I'm going to make it right. And so it just becomes like, I guess, like an, ex another extracurricular activity, except this extracurricular activity is not something that, you know, you signed up for, not something you expected to do, not something that you'll really enjoy uh, at all, but it's something that, you know, it's like, it's pretty much just do or die. So there's no real option. That's like, that for me was like, period of my time where I felt like I just needed to like calm down you know but I'm not sure like there could be much convincing for someone who's like at that point because it is very frustrating and it is like no I don't want to calm down I want to do my best you know so yeah I think that is the major 
challenge. I'm not sure I have good solutions for it because I don't think I could convince myself back then to just be like, you don't need to try that hard. Like, you know, like you can just take a gap year if you want, you can, but I didn't want to, <laughs> I just didn't want to. And then, mm -hmm. you know, I put myself through a whole lot more stress than I needed to be in during that time. Max, you mentioned the podcast episode, Walk Two Roads, um, where you're hoping for the best and planning at the same time. So um, you're in a different situation now uh, than you were when you were first diagnosed. Would you say that you still have hope? I think it is like, it is sort of hope in the sense that it's something that I'm trying to look to the future and feel like there's still something there's still some meaning to it all, yeah. but it's more ambiguous. Whereas I guess previously it was more like very clear cut. It was just my original goals, but you know, with an extra challenge and sort of this hope is something that I had to build on my own, like completely. And I didn't know how to build it. And I didn't want to build it because I still missed my old dream. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like it was very, very tough to sort of reorient myself and think like, you know, just accept the reality that my life is not going to be long. And that's really like the key thing, the, the key step that was necessary for me to like, at least have some hope about, you know, where this is all going. Because mm -hmm. if I can't even, if I say, oh, this is unacceptable, then how can you like, it's very difficult to say what's most likely going to happen is un unacceptable right because that's something that you, you have to be prepared to accept and so once i was prepared to accept the likelihood of that happening there were still things that i wanted to do except now it's very very different um mm. now i can't look you know too strongly at like a career path or anything like that now it was more like i have a limited amount of time and now i have to like sort of reprioritize like the things mm -hmm. that I really want um, to express and the things that I really want to keep doing. And so a lot of the things from my old goal were missing from that, like accepting that I'll be taking a break from this whole like college nonsense and like, or not nonsense, but like, like I was really torturing myself with like, you know, mm -hmm. the thought of just having to keep moving despite uh, my cancer, boxing that away and then focusing on like what remains of my uh, time here and then like thinking about what I want to do, I guess. Yeah. I, you know, what I'm hearing is that it's been really important for you to be grounded in the reality of where you're at in your situation. Um, you had a certain kind of hope when you were first diagnosed, like the first time around, you were hoping that it would all go away and that you would just pick up where you left off um, in your life that once was, right? Um, yeah. And that in order for <clears throat> you to continue to have hope, it's important for you to just be really realistic about that hope, not think too far ahead or think unrealistically that there's a reality part to your hope. Um, and, and we've heard that from other people as well. And you really just described that um, so eloquently. So thank you. I just want to just to tag on to that just a little bit, just because I think Max, he articulated it so well. And I think this is something that I see in, in 
in all, all, all my patients, but especially with this group is there's a grieving process that has to be had around the loss of your own self. Mm -hmm. um, one of the nurse practitioners I've worked with or had privilege of working with for many years, she often kind of, she knows this is one of my kind of, my techniques of talking with people, but just, you know, accepting the, the, the loss of who you were um, and having to reorganize mm -hmm. who, how you see yourself in this new state of a disease, this new state of a short life. And there's still hope to be had, right? Like I think Max does it very well. There are still good things. There are things that you can still hope for, but it needs to be reorganized. Um, and that process can be really hard for a lot of people. Um, it can be really challenging to kind of grieve the loss of not being able to finish college mm -hmm. or grieve the loss of not being able to have a child or whatever it may be. Those life experiences can be really hard for people to kind of let go. I would be remiss if I did not ask you both, well, what you thought about our podcast and if you found any of the keys helpful in how you thought about things. I think the way you have outlined out kind of the process, and like Sam says, it's not like a step, right? It's not like you go from step one to step two to step three, but just kind of articulating what this journey may look like for you. Um, and I think there are some things that are going to be harder for some people. Um, and there's going to be some things that are easier for people to kind of accept and own. Um, and it could be, you know, just as like walking that journey of, 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 of holding on to, to hope and yet also planning for in case the hope doesn't happen. Those are some truths for all of us, um, regardless of where we're at in our life journey. So I, I, I actually think that there's a lot there that could be worthwhile for people um, to really kind of incorporate. Mm -hmm. Max, how about you? For me, I think the thing that most resonated with me was being able to like zoom out. It was more like it was more like a balance between like trying to zoom out and like zoom in almost. Like what I mean by that is like you know just trying to disease wise instead of not caring about like what happens down the further down the line. You know, trying to sort of be prepared for. You know all the steps in like the diseases like you know natural history sort of um and being ready for that also zooming in from like all the things that i was or i wanted to like experience that might not be possible and so just like reframing how i'm thinking about the future because you know during those times it's like sometimes i'm like drifting too far out almost or drifting too far in Max, has it been important, and you know you don't have to answer any question we, we ask, but has it been important for you to ask really humongous questions like things around a timeline? For me, it was like not very necessary at the beginning uh, because of how helpful like, you know, the Stanford people were like they, they had like the map of like, you know, the, the treatment and all, everything and my doctors have always been like, you know, very clear about like timeline stuff when it became more important was during my diagnosis when it came back at that time I had to sort of you know ask myself well is this going to be curable or not you know what are the chances that I'll survive more than like two years to try and get some more specifics I think you know Max he does a very good job I don't think he recognizes that he actually highlights a lot of the different keys that you guys talk about right in your podcast the idea of just recognizing your 
own personal approach to your healthcare. For Max, he wants to be direct. He wants questions asked and answered. Not everyone's like that, right? Some people don't want to know everything. Some people just want to know big picture or some people don't want to know anything. And they tell you to tell, you know, who their surrogate is and everything goes to that direction. Um, but then Max being able to take control about what's important to him and, you know, him, he himself inviting himself to ask those hard questions and talk about those hard things. Like those are all pieces that are part of the journey that you, you all highlight very well. Um, that's part of this process. There's a really good question in the chat. Someone is, is curious um, what has and hasn't been helpful for healthcare providers to say or do uh, in your journey. I guess I like I just have one thing to say, I guess. Um, I think it's actually very helpful for providers to be, I guess, very willing to talk about past their own past experiences. Because like right off the bat, I know like whoever I'm seeing is gonna wanna know my history and stuff like that. But also like because this is an area where I want to also understand my healthcare provider, I also wanna know like, you know, what experiences have they had, like especially, you know, with cases that may not be like good to hear about like it's very important to like know like you know what has happened in the past in similar situations and mm. like the possibilities i would just say that that's like our example of invite yourself as a patient you can invite yourself to the conversation but as a provider you can invite the patient to know that would it be helpful to know that we have would it be helpful to hear this would it be helpful to talk about this will that and and follow their lead. Like Max clearly is someone who found the examples helpful, um, but they don't know what you know. So I think um, mm -hmm. that's a it's 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 clear that you know you're able to articulate what you're looking for, and and the relationship is there, and so they're following your lead. And I think that's you know seems to have made a difference in your experience um, so far. I, yeah, and I'm going to answer this as if, you know, this person is a healthcare worker or if other people are listening or healthcare workers. Um, I, I, I would say the thing that I would, I would challenge everybody to really kind of really make the biggest difference in this journey helping with anybody who's living with serious illness or life-limiting illness is working on reframing your mind around what your purpose is in healthcare. Um, where I find people burning themselves out emotionally is because we have built in our heads this idea that my job as a physician or my job as a nurse or whatever your role in, me in medicine is, is to cure the disease, is to help the person not die. And the truth is, right, for all of us, none of us escape this, mort this mortal journey without having an end. That's the truth for all of us. And sometimes it happens sooner than later. And you can make a huge amount of difference, some amazing impacts for people, allowing them to live life to their fullest, whatever that life spectrum is, and reframing your own mind so you don't feel this sense of failure, right? Because you can actually look at it in the way of like, actually, I gave this person more time, they were able to achieve this goal. And that reframe, I think, is really the biggest thing that can help healthcare workers. Yeah, that's amazing advice. Can I ask you something about what you um, mentioned earlier about legacy leaving? Can you share what that means to you and the types of things that your 
involved in? I think it's more about like leaving and just being able to express myself, um, not necessarily like for the sake of leaving like any legacy possible. It's just more like trying to stay true to myself and being able to express, uh, you know, what I want to express. And an example of this, I was recently advocating for more, more research and more focus towards um, brain preservation uh, for the Brain Preservation Foundation. Mm-hmm. What they're trying to do is sort of like uh, science advocacy for like the future and just basically pushing neuroscientists to talk more about uh, brain preservation and like stuff that could help uh, terminal patients. It Again, it says a lot about you as a person, right? That um, you've moved beyond, I think some people call that transcendence. You move beyond your own needs and you're thinking about other people, the world around you, the future of humankind, et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, you're very special. Good job, mom. Good job, Max's mom. Josh, I have a question for you. The, the you know, this is, um, you know, the AYA community, you know, this age range is very large. I mean, we were looking for, you know, groups to sort of connect with. And it, and it seems like um, it's, a, it's a sort of a very diverse community. And I guess I'm wondering your thoughts around some of the challenges around uh, engagement, community building, advocacy for this diverse group. Because I mean, even, you know, ASCO, the American Society for Clinical Oncology, I thought they would have a working group or a a subgroup, but it didn't seem to be, maybe I just didn't find it, but um, has it been challenging? Like, what, why do you think that there aren't more people corralling around this group that, you know, clearly are very articulate and have, you know, important needs that are not necessarily being addressed? For me, it's like really lack of confidence and also like lack of like knowing that many perspectives, because I feel like I'm just me and like, I feel like everyone has their own way of dealing with this. Uh, and I can't speak for, you know, everyone in my age group, especially the AYA age group, which, you know, goes up like way older than me. And then like, I feel like maybe um, even, even if it was like just teenagers, like that age range, I still couldn't like speak for, you know, those people. I feel like it's just very difficult to, to have like one sort of community based on just that one struggle that we all deal with there's still like a tremendous like diversity. Mm-hmm. And Josh, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I think this is a, an area that it's, I think people are starting to recognize this is an important group of patients that are unique, right? I think for the longest time, we kind of have always, you're under 18, so you're pediatric, you're over 18, you're an adult. And actually this group of people actually have very unique challenges um, you know, if you look at just kind of the overall mortality of cancer care for this group, even though it's been decreasing for a lot of cancer types, there are still some cancer types where it hasn't changed, right? And unfortunately, that is bone cancer. Sarcoma is one of those, right? Where we're not seeing a lot of the improvements we're seeing with other types of cancer types um, in other age groups. I think there's also not a lot of research um, being done like what what is the impact of living with cancer if you are a survivor? How does that impact your, your life, right? What is the morbid, morbidity effects of that? And I think we really haven't looked at that fully either. Um, so I, I, I do think that it's starting to become much more of part of the dialogue, which is obviously the first step towards change. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely feel like we have, you know, some ways to go as far as really looking at, at this group of patients specifically and how best to care for them. Max, what's most important to you now? Like, what are the most important things? I know your mom is, and I know Josh, <laughs> but what's what's important to you in this chapter? I think I'm having trouble with that, but I do have certain things that I know are important, like spending time with my family and you know preparing to say goodbye, you know, to my family and to my friends, and that's like sort of a problem I face. And I guess problems are important things, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then besides that, also my own mortality and also trying to find things to do that I feel like would be meaningful. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that sort of ties back into like the legacy thing. Max highlighted a, a couple of things I think is really important for this specific group is the impacts, not just that as the families are going through this, but friends, right? I feel like this group, even more so than others, your, your, your social circle doesn't know how to respond yeah. to a person who may be facing end of life. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we think about social media and all these really positive things that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. I've had a fair number of patients in this group tell me they hate social media, right? Social media actually ends up becoming really hard because you see your friends move on with their life, get the job, get the kid going, and kind of it becomes this ongoing kind of battle of like your reality versus what their reality is Mm -hmm. and even though those friendships may continue Mm -hmm. when you get together it's like the friends who aren't going through it don't know quite to say right how what do you say um you know if you know if you know if you're um if you become a widow widower of of someone who's died from cancer in this age group you don't you don't have support groups right Mm -hmm. the same widow widower groups that you would go to when you're 80s or 90s you don't really fit in and so I think this group is really unique because those social struggles are are very specific and different than others. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. But my friends, I think, have been very they're just very like mature. They responded like like very well. They just I feel like they know what to say, but like it's just me that always feels anxious, you know, when they come to visit. But that's really just like the first couple of moments. Mm-hmm. And so like just getting over that awkwardness. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's a big deal because I'm just like the anxious type of person. But yeah, but my friends are like more, I think in general, they're more extroverted than I am. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, it's it's like you're coming, you need to come out to your friends that you, you're you are facing end of life, right? And mm-hmm. um, I can recall one of my very first patients I ever had in my role as a palliative physician who really kind of opened my mind that this group of patients are unique and different is he never told his friends anything about his disease until he was basically months away from end of life. Mm -hmm. And when he finally did, it was heartbreaking because he actually texted me saying, this is the, I should have done this months ago. Like my friends are awesome. Like, right. And I feel Mm -hmm. like Max is right. Like once you kind of overcome that initial hurdle that sometimes is our own internal fears, our friends and families can surprise us. Like they kind of support and say, oh, all right, let's move on. Like, we'll be yeah. good. Yeah, that, that's like, I feel like that mirrors my situation um, because I always waited until like people were like, hey, how are you doing? Like sometimes I had to like, you know, turn off my phone and just be like, crap. Yeah, but and like, it's always very like upsetting, you know, um, because they always like, just like, they're just very concerned. And 
I don't know what I would do in that situation. You know, it's like, it's very heavy stuff and I don't want to bring it on to other people. The only people who know about it are people who like asked how I was doing. Uh, it's just difficult to like talk about, I guess, but I think it's worth it. It's worth it to like, maybe if approaching first is not like your style, then you can wait and just like keep it to yourself and then, but don't wait for until like, you know, you know, you're gonna, uh, you're like months away from the disease, like getting really bad. But in my case, uh, you know, people who talk to me more often, like were immediately aware. Um, mm -hmm. And I also told them, you know, like, don't tell, you know, this person, I want to tell them myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that was really just a way to avoid like telling them at all. <laughs> um yeah because i also don't know like you know for for friends that were just like not as close i don't want to burden with them with this and so it's just it's very difficult to decide when and who you're going to tell like mm -hmm. your situation to. i often in my mind i always kind of the metaphor i picture is this like the wall that we all in this mortal journey we have to process at some point, right? Like I am a mortal person. I'm going to face my end. Luckily, I can live in ignorance right now, but there will come a point in, my, in time when I have to really truly face what it means to maybe be gone. And there's work to be had. There's work. And you can either kind of pile that work in the closet and close the door and leave it for another day. Eventually, it's going to fall over. Like you, that work has to be, you have to process it. You have to say the goodbyes. You have to go through the legacy building. You have to do all these things. Or exactly like you really highlighted really well, you can address it, right? You can focus. It doesn't mean it's easier every day. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be some hard days or hard moments or hard emotions, but it's manageable, right? You can contain this process in a much more manageable way than letting it pile up and then eventually just fall over on top of you. Closure. You can you can have closure, and there's still steps after, but you can you can sure. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I might as well say this because it's like pretty relevant. I I'm actually you know my friends gave me this idea, but I'm actually preparing to write some stuff like as like a final message because my my friends some of my friends send me like letters, and you know they know it's because like sometimes like i'm like in person it's like very difficult to talk about like these things and so like the letters i felt like you know were a good idea and also i feel like for me personally it would be kind of uncomfortable to have said stuff i want to say like about everyone and that's like oh well i'm still here like you know so um i think maybe because they send letters to me so then i feel like very appropriate to send them uh, some stuff like at the end Mm -hmm. uh, so I can have like the last word. I feel like that's very Aww. like just my preference. But Sneaky. yeah, that's like a good way uh, for me to get closure. And you know, that's that's about knowing your style too, right? Yeah. So your style would be to write letters and um, to leave them for people mm. and let them absorb them mm -hmm. and have all the big bells and whistles around it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and speaking of which, we're sort of um, coming a little bit to the end of our time. So I'd love to oh. leave the last word to I to well both of you. Thanks so much for inviting me. And this is definitely something like that. I feel like yeah, to be able to contribute to this in any way is like makes me happy. Yeah. You've done an incredible job. I want to. We want to know if Josh has some last words. 
Uh, I mean, no, not to steal anything from Max. Um, I think for me, just I, anybody, you, you're not alone. Like, I mean, you're anybody who's going through this, there are people who are wanting and willing to help you, whether you're on the oncology side, you're like, I don't know what to do. There are people who are willing and willing to help you. And if you're on the patient side, there are there are there are definitely resources out there. Um, it may take a little bit of kind of research, but there are definitely people that want to help you through this. But thanks for having us. Thanks for having Max. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, Max, it was an honor to meet you and know you, and thank you for sharing your time tonight. And same, Josh as well. It was fun, and yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for being part of our revolution. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me, Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.